It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out, when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. From Mary Shelley's Frankenstein A departure from the mottled green corpse with bolts on its neck struck alive by lightning. Frankenstein's monster was originally described as an eight-foot-tall creature with yellow skin, lustrous black flowing hair, watery eyes, and straight black lips, animated with a spark. What this spark is, we don't quite know. It could be a metaphor, but Professor Nick Groom of Exeter University, also known as the Prof of Goth, gives an introduction to the 2019 Oxford University Press's edition of Frankenstein, where he explains that Mary Shelley, along with her husband Percy, both had a strong fascination with galvanism, which is the generation of electrical current using chemical reactions with applications for stimulating or restarting life. This could be the inspiration of the so-called spark. Of course, nowadays we know electrical currents may mimic the action potential from our central nervous system, causing muscles to only contract or convulse. But back in the late 1700s, early 1800s, there were those who saw this behavior as evidence of an animal electricity, or a force that gave life to organic matter, even corpses. Welcome back to our Writers and Thinkers series. Today's episode will be on the gothic horror and political feminist writer Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. As always, I hope you enjoy the ride. Mary Shelley, Frankenstein's Monster and the Last Romantic Part 1. The Modern Prometheus Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley's most famous work, Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, was published in 1818, where The Modern Prometheus was originally the subtitle of the book, but is frequently dropped in editions today. A bit of background here. Prometheus was the titan god in Greek mythology who helped form humanity and who bestowed fire from the gods upon humanity so that we may go on to create civilization. As a result, we associate Prometheus with the concepts of intelligence and culture. In the myth, the titan Prometheus was punished for stealing fire from the gods and was subsequently chained to a rock where an eagle was to peck at his constantly regenerating liver for eternity and constant suffering. The parallels between the Prometheus myth and Frankenstein is that both the scientist Victor Frankenstein and the titan Prometheus had animated something lifeless and both ended up suffering immensely from their obsession with their creations, though in different ways. Victor out of fear and hatred, Prometheus out of, perhaps, love. Many nowadays refer to the monster in Mary Shelley's work as just Frankenstein, but that's not entirely accurate. Victor Frankenstein was the name of the scientist that found a way to animate the assembled body parts from corpses to create a nameless monster, and since the monster lived without a name, we call it Frankenstein's monster. The story takes place in 1700, in a fresh twist of storytelling from the Romantic era, specifically on Frankenstein's monster and its internal emotional dialogue. The story focuses on its quest for a companion, another intelligent sapient creature like itself to navigate the tribulations of life a companion to be happy with. 
the monster wants its creator, Dr. Victor Frankenstein, to create this companion for it. Meanwhile, Victor himself starts off being horrified at the creature he's created, and eventually embarks on a quest, convinced of his unsightly monster's malice, to kill it. There's a strong gothic aesthetic to the work, evoking feelings of both terror and wonder, and using science to create sentience, to create life, in an old laboratory. In this way, some also consider Frankenstein to be one of the first works of science fiction, featuring the trope of the disturbed, knowledge-hungry scientist, reminiscent of the classic German legend Faust, where a scholar makes a pact with the demon Mephistopheles for success, knowledge, and power, sacrificing his soul and moral integrity in the process. Mary Shelley conceived of Frankenstein at the age of 18, in 1816, at a mansion Lord Byron had rented in the village of Colony near Lake Geneva, Switzerland. Mary, her to-be-husband Percy, and her stepsister Claire Clement took a trip to visit Lord Byron, whom Claire had a previous affair with, and Byron's physician, John William Polidori. Over the course of three long days indoors, plagued by incessant rain, the five of them decide to read an anthology of German ghost stories, and then hold the contest to write their own fantastical tales. It was here in the mansion Villa Diodati, stuck indoors, relishing ghost stories, rain pattering non-stop, that Shelley came up with Frankenstein, partly inspired by her own travels the year prior along the Rhine in Germany, coming near the historic Frankenstein castle. It was at this same contest that Polidori also finished The Vampire, a short work widely known as the forebear to the vampire genre. Lord Byron and Percy Shelley were no literary novices either. Both of them would become key figures of the Romantic movement in Britain, writing authentically and emotionally. In response, or perhaps in retaliation, of the previous Enlightenment era's focus on rationality, Lord Byron was best known for his long and oftentimes saucy narrative poems, reflecting his own life of debauchery, and Percy for his lyrical works as well as sonnets, including the famous poem, Ozymandias. Romantic works as a movement from 1800 to 1850 focuses more on the individual experiencing the gamut of human emotions and describing such feelings in art filled with terror, lust, awe, love, world weariness, and hatred, to name a few. That was how Frankenstein, the work, was born. Stuck inside a mansion on some consecutive rainy days, a villa of romantic era heavyweights holding a competition for who can write the most fantastical horror contest that Mary Shelley certainly won. Though Shelley herself wrote a great deal in romantic style, there's been scholarly contention to how much she embodied the romantic era ideals of her time. She clearly rejected the previous Enlightenment era ideals, such as its crutch on rational thinking and optimistic belief that collective societal efforts will lead towards inevitable progress, but she also rejects the emotionally charged individualism of the romantic era as an adequate socio-political response but more on this later when we examine her other works. For now, we delve deeper into... Part 2. The Monster's Plight Frankenstein details a new type of story for its time, one where a monster is made both simultaneously sympathetic and terrifying. A story with implications on if a person or sentient being is turned into a murderer by nature or nurture. Did Frankenstein's monster kill purely because it was born to be amoral or even immoral? Or was it driven to act on these hateful urges through circumstance? Most who read the original book would say it was likely the latter, that the monster had learned to be a monster by the violent reaction of others, 
though those who have only consumed subsequent films, shows, or story adaptations would say the monster was born violent. One of the main differences between the original novel and its various media spin-offs is on the empathy and intelligence of the monster. Shelley's work describes the monster as articulate. The monster learns how to speak from eavesdropping on a peasant family and figures out how to read from finding a lost bag of books. The monster even engages with a blind peasant father in pleasant conversation before being reminded of human hostility towards it, before being chased off by the man's son. The monster is attacked and shot multiple times in the book just by occupying an ugly, hulking being. The work presenting a critique on those who judge based on appearances, denying the humanity and emotions of someone hideous, of the other. However, in most later adaptations of Frankenstein, the monster is shown to have little to no intelligence, mainly grunting with arms raised stiff and menacing, indicating that it was simply born this way. From Shelley's book, the plight of the thinking, feeling monster is as equally tragic as the scientist creators. The monster suffers from immense loneliness, being the first and only of its kind, and hated for its very being by the masters of the world it inhabits, humans. It seeks to find a companion and to hide away in solitude, seemingly preferring not to hurt anyone or being hurt by anyone. Though the monster did intentionally strangle William Frankenstein, Victor's youngest brother, it's to be noted that the monster did this more from a childlike rage on being rejected rather than from a precalculated hostility. Nevertheless, this event kicks off the monster's vengeance against its creator. From the scientist Victor Frankenstein's perspective, he has created a monster seeking revenge for its own creation, and in carrying its vengeance out, it attempts to murder Victor's entire family. He's racked with guilt and terror. The monster approaches Victor and demands that he make another monster, a companion, for as a living being, it too has a right to happiness. And if Victor refuses, it will kill all his loved ones. A passage from Frankenstein. If I cannot inspire love, I will cause fear, and chiefly towards you, my archenemy, because my creator do I swear inextinguishable hatred. By the end of the novel, both Victor and the monster become consumed by their vengeance towards each other. Both fail to seek peace in their lives. Victor dies with regret at how his life turned out. Similarly, the monster regrets the crimes it's committed, and takes no pleasure from the death of its creator. It wanders off in a snowy, desolate arctic, seeking death for itself as well. Part 3. The Last of the Romantics Mary Shelley is often characterized as a romantic writer, and more precisely as a gothic writer. The gothic is commonly seen as a subset of the larger romantic movement, but note that when speaking about something as imprecise as genres or large-scale cultural movements, along with the fuzzy boundaries that come along with it, there are those that have different takes, even among historical scholars, some of which believe the romantic and gothic to be distinct movements. So please, bear in mind that other descriptions of gothicism and romanticism may be a bit different than mine. Generally speaking, the Gothic is concerned about the darker themes in Romanticism, mainly of art describing decay, terror, and distress. Perhaps that's why Gothic influences are more interesting to us now in the modern world, surviving the test of time compared to many other Romantic genre works. What can I say? Dark themes are fun, and may I say, I'm loving the resurgence of the Gothic dark academia aesthetic trend nowadays, at least as a niche part of modern subculture. 
to give proper context to Shelley's works, we'd have to take a deeper dive into the time and prominent cultural movements in which she produced them. Romanticism, rising at the very end of the 1700s until the 1850s, is in many ways a revolt against the previous age of enlightenment. Under Romanticism, expressive individual imagination gained authority over scientific rationalism as a source for truth. Art, descriptions of nature, aesthetics, and intense personal experiences were seen as a primary source of truth. Furthermore, the experiences of common folk started to gain prominence in the arts, whereas in the past, only the experiences of the aristocracy was written about, painted, or sculpted. Many during the previous Enlightenment era believed that with the passage of time and free discourse comes objective societal progress. When the reverberations of the French Revolution swept through Europe, many began to feel that this sentiment was not true, that society can regress and societal progress is not always guaranteed with time. And so, along with the complete restructuring of previous monarchical aristocratic rule in France, another paradigm of thinking was needed, and with it, along with a host of other influencing events, a new cultural movement began to spread throughout Europe. Romanticism. This psychology, in my opinion, has parallels to what we see now in the North American zeitgeist. Circumstances are no doubt vastly different, but the optimism of American progress in manufacturing, technology, and media prevalent in the past 50 years have started to fade in recent years. There's a creeping sentiment that progress may not automatically happen with time, as the current generation of Americans are the first generation since the country's founding financially worse off than their parents. And just like how artistic focus drifted away from the aristocracy towards highlighting the individualistic experiences of the other, the common folk, during Romanticism, media and entertainment nowadays have been drifting to highlight more visceral experiences from underrepresented groups, producing identity-focused stories with Academy Award-winning films like Nomadland, about the modern disenfranchised blue-collar nomad, and The Green Book, about a black pianist's road trip touring the Deep South. Whereas two decades ago, award-winning films previously looked much more like Gladiator and Shakespeare in Love. Mary Shelley lived at a time in a position where she was a key figure pushing a new paradigm of cultural thinking, an inflection point much like how cultural narratives are changing today. Her husband Percy and one of her good friends Lord Byron were both also widely considered to be key figures of British Romanticism, though both died early on in the 1820s. Shelley continued to write after their deaths, producing The Last Man in 1826, Lodore in 1835, and Faulkner in 1837, though her later works may be seen as a slight departure from conventional romanticism. A personal opinion here, Shelley's The Last Man could have become the first existentialist work if it had not drifted into obscurity falling out of print for over a century after its terrible reception on publication. It's simultaneously a dystopian novel, and a eulogy for her husband Percy, who drowned in a shipwreck, and friend Lord Byron, who succumbed to a fever participating in the Greek War of Independence. The story features a plague that wipes out all of humanity. Two key figures that attempt to guide humanity through this ordeal are Adrian, Earl of Windsor, a poetic and noble man based on Percy, attempting to lead his followers to paradise, and Lord Raymond, a passionate and capricious man based in turn on Lord Byron. The story focuses on the idea of lastness, ending with Lionel Verney, the last survivor of humanity, which can be an autobiographical representation of Shelley, left to wander the desolate world, alone. Perhaps The Last Man was poorly received because it did not fit with any of the prominent ideals of its time. Both Adrian and Lord Raymond failed in finding an adequate path for humanity. 
and neither held enlightenment thinking nor the romantic response in high regard. Instead, it seems to reject both ideas, and in its place, early reviewers only saw an emptiness or brutality that made them squirm. The same void that perhaps Jean-Paul Sartre looked down upon a century later and described the feeling as vertigo, a word designed to fit into this imagined hole. Shelley had published The Last Man four years after the death of her husband Percy, and perhaps it reflected the hopelessness of her widowed position, especially since, at the time, Mary Shelley was one of the last great Romantic-era influences still alive, in close parallel to her last man in the story, Lionel. In fact, Shelley went on to outlive many other Romantic poets, including Keats, Coleridge, and even Wordsworth, by one year. The Last Man, as a partly romantic work that kind of dismisses romantic ideals as well, does not portray the scientific and medicinal pursuits as a solution to the world-ending plague, as Enlightenment-era writers would, nor does it focus much on the individual experience as the focal point, with a narrative that seems to criticize the French Revolution in stark opposition to Percy and Byron's own beliefs in the conventional, experiential, romantic style. Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground was considered the first existential work by many, but only because it was later read by and influenced the likes of Kafka and Nietzsche, making it an initial link in a historical chain of existentialist works, though admittedly some may find this first link to be tenuously connected, perhaps if The Last Man didn't fall out of print, perhaps if Mary Shelley's descendants had not washed over her image with a veneer of conservatism befit for a woman of her time, which obscures her own personal and political philosophies, The Last Man could have become that first link of existential, at the very least an initial spark of modernist philosophy. At least. That's a personal take. Continuing on, Shelley's Lodore and Faulkner were both focused on family dynamics and the role of woman within. Both were received much more positively by readers during her time compared to The Last Man, and they both feature strong, educated heroines that have to navigate through the complex social dynamics of their time. Lodore is about two women, the daughter and the wife or widow of a refined gentleman, Lord Lodore, that was killed in a duel. The story centers around how they navigate through the resulting societal and financial ramifications of the duel's outcome. Faulkner is about a young woman, Elizabeth Raby, raised by her adoptive and oppressive father, Faulkner. Elizabeth falls in love with a Gerald Neville, who despises Elizabeth's adoptive father for his close relationship with his mother, as well as his own father, for different personal reasons. Faulkner is a story of familial secrets and legal drama. Elizabeth has to tap into a pure and honorable sensibility to reconcile the relationships between herself, her lover, and her estranged father. Wow, that sounds like a typical back cover description. <laughs> Didn't mean to do that. Mary Shelley also wrote Matilda, which was her last published work about a father's incestuous love for his daughter. In actuality, Matilda was written early on in the 1820s, right after Frankenstein, but only made commercially available in 1959, over a century following her death. It went on to become her second most famous work, following Frankenstein, of course. A funny story about Matilda, Mary Shelley sent the work to her father, William Godwin, for him to publish, but due to the incestuous nature of the work, he withheld it. Many would find it strange that Shelley would send such a work to her father, but to give a bit more of a background, her father was a fairly strange man by the time standards as well. William Godwin was one of the first exponents of both utilitarianism and anarchism, while still strongly insistent on social decorum, which is a strange quality even today for an anarchist to have. We've gone in-depth into utilitarian ideas in my previous episode on philosopher Peter Singer, so be sure to check that out if you haven't already. 
In all, as a gothic writer and one of the last great romantic writers, Mary Shelley had massive influence in the sci-fi, gothic, and romantic era genres, as well as, in a social sense, effectively transcribed the feminine experience living in Georgian period England. She lived on to witness the deaths of many great romantic writers of her time, including her husband, and, no doubt, in the ensuing loneliness, she felt a strong kinship with the idea of lastness. We close off with a passage from The Last Man. Deep sorrow must have been the inmate of our bosoms. Fraud must have lain in wait for us. The artful must have deceived us. Sickening doubt and false hope must have checkered our days. Hilarity and joy that lapped the soul in ecstasy must at times have possessed us. Who that knows what life is would pine for this feverish species of existence? I have lived. I have spent days and nights of festivity. I have joined in ambitious hopes and exulted in victory. Now, shut the door in the world and build high the wall that is to separate me from the troubled scene enacted within its precincts. Let us live for each other and for happiness. Let us seek peace in our dear home, near the inland murmur of streams and the gracious waving of trees and the beauteous vesture of earth and sublime pageantry of the skies. Let us leave life that we may live. Thank you once again for reaching the end with me, and I hope you're looking forward to our next Writers and Thinkers episode on the logical thinker, Kurt Girdle. I'll see you next time.